We're going to be back in Mark today, no surprises. Uh, let's open our Bibles, Mark chapter 1. And we're still in Mark chapter 1, and we will be in Mark chapter 1 for a good while. There are a lot of verses in Mark chapter 1, and Mark does not waste words. And we're going to see that this morning. And we'll look at the passage in just a moment. Actually, I would like us to pause for just a moment and, and have just one more word of prayer, ask God's blessing. I would ask your prayer. I received a text just now uh, during the offering. Uh, one of our staff members up at Northland, she was admitted to the hospital yesterday uh, with pneumonia, um, but they found a cyst in her lung, and um, she has had other complications. She now has a collapsed lung. It seems like they're going to have to re remove part of her lung in order to uh, stop the fluid. So uh, if you wouldn't mind praying for her as we pray, her name is Hannah. I think she might be having surgery today. That's what they're talking about. So let's pray. We'll ask God's blessing on our time. If you would mind praying for Hannah as well, I'd appreciate that. Father, we, we know that you are a sovereign God. You are in control. Nothing surprises you. Nothing is out of your hands. Father, we ask that you as the sovereign God would first sovereignly speak to us, that you would call to us in a way that is undeniable, unmistakable, and that we must follow. Father, we also pray that you would sovereignly intervene with Hannah today, that you would alleviate her pain, that you would give doctors wisdom uh, whether or not to have the surgery, and if they do, would you give them skill to do it well that she might be able to recover fully? Father, as you work in our hearts and in our midst, we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, we're in Mark chapter 1. We'll read in just a moment. But before we do, I want you to consider with me uh, an, an English idiom. Okay, now can you say that word for the pulpit? Yes, you can. Okay, I'm not calling anyone an idiom. I'm talking about a a turn of phrase, an expression, an English idiom. It's an expression that communicates a feeling that I think is almost universal. At some point, all of us will experience this feeling. Many people, it's in their youth, but some of them, they experience it their entire lives. And the idiom is this, I need to find my calling. I need to find my calling. I think deep down, we all have a sense that there must be a calling for me. There must be one specific thing that I am meant to do that defines me. And maybe there are some people uh, in this room and you feel that you found your calling. You found that thing that you're, you're meant to do. It's your thing. Maybe there are people in here who are still searching for your calling. Uh, Maybe you gave up the idea of a calling a long time ago. You just decided your life is what it is. Um, I feel that my calling is to ministry. My vocational calling is to ministry. And I think if your vocation, vocational calling is ministry, that can be a, a pretty radical calling. I Actually, my grandpa's here, and grandma, uh, but grandpa uh, recommended to me a book that I haven't finished, but I've gotten a good chunk of it done, um, it's a book about a missionary. I think you'd call him a missionary. His name is Frank Higgins. He was a, a Presbyterian pastor who, while pastoring in the Midwest, actually abandoned his pastorate to become a missionary to the lumberjacks up in Duluth in the late 1800s and early 1900s. 
And it's a fascinating story of this guy who um, he felt called to reach the lumberjacks uh, with the gospel. And so every day he would load up either his back or his sled with Bibles and hymnals and gospel pamphlets and he would hike out into the woods from lumberjack camp to lumberjack camp and he would live with the men, he would wrestle with the men, he would joke with the men and he would give them the gospel and he spent his life and actually gave up his health uh, in order to reach them. That's a pretty extreme calling, but why would a person do that? Well, he felt called to do it. It was his calling. So that was, that was a vocational uh, ministry call. But whatever your vocational calling or whatever you feel your calling is for your job, there is another calling. A calling that every believer shares in common. And it's one that as we look at Mark 1 today, we're going to see an extreme example of. A universal calling that was responded to by four men. This calling is a calling that some churchgoers, I would say many churchgoers, refuse to answer. And there are a few reasons a person would refuse to answer this call. We'll get to those in a moment. But the calling is the calling to be a disciple of Christ. A disciple of Christ. Maybe that word disciple doesn't mean much to you now, but in a moment I'm going to explain to you the ins and outs of what it means to be a disciple of Christ and the importance of this calling. Now, let's catch up because it's been a little while since I've been here. It's been a little while since we've been in the book of Mark. And I think it's really important as we think about what Mark includes and what he disincludes uh, to get some context and figure out what is it that Mark is trying to emphasize in his situation and how does that apply to us today. So, when we last, you remember last time we talked about Mark, we talked about Jesus' tiny sermon. Were you here? Do you remember this? Jesus' tiny sermon, okay? It's not really a tiny sermon, it's just a very small snippet of a sermon that we get. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is Jesus' message to the people in Galilee. But actually, if you were to compare all the gospels together, you'll notice that before Jesus' entrance into Galilee, Mark disincludes a whole lot of stuff about Jesus' ministry. Uh, you might notice that uh, Jesus turning the water into wine, that miracle is absent from Mark's Gospel. It would have already happened by the time Jesus arrives in Galilee. Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem, where he for the first time cast out the money changers and overturned the tables, he would do that twice. That has already happened before his entrance into Galilee. He had performed other healings and other miracles, and the interesting thing is, he had already begun to gain followers. There were people who were very interested in what Jesus was doing, and they would just follow him around just to see or hear what he was going to do next, whether it was going to be inflammatory, whether it was going to be amazing, whatever it would be, they were just curious what was going to happen next. Jesus had begun to gather followers. And now Jesus has entered into Galilee. We talked about this last time, but I'll remind you, it's the northern region of the Holy Land. Um, and as he enters into Galilee, he's going to spend his time centered around uh, a cultural and business center in Galilee, which is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, at the time of Christ, this sea, and it is not, it's technically not a sea, okay? It is a lake, uh, but they call it the Sea of Galilee. It's a little optimistic. It's only like seven or eight miles wide, 13 miles long. It's not 
that big. It is like, a, it's a lake, okay? So they're at the Lake of Galilee, and around the Sea of Galilee uh, is where much of the commerce of the time would happen. In fact, by far, the biggest industry of that area was the fishing industry. See, people in the Holy Land in that time, or at least even people all the way around the Mediterranean, uh, they would eat very little meat. They would eat lots of fish because fish was in abundance, both in the Sea of Galilee, the Mediterranean Sea. Fishing was a big industry, and people ate a lot of fish, no problem getting their omega-3s in, okay? So they, they, the fishing industry was a big deal at this time. And in fact, the fishing industry on the Lake of Galilee, okay, the Sea of Galilee, was so prosperous that they would not just provide fish for the people of Galilee and not just provide fish for the people of Israel, but they were actually shipping their fish over international borders into other country to provide fish. At this time in history especially, this sea was teeming with life. There were so many fish in it. And uh, so fishing was the industry of this area, much in the way that for many, many years, the automotive industry has been the industry in eastern Michigan, okay? It's like, you, if you didn't work in fishing, you probably knew somebody who worked in fishing. Around this time, uh, during a particular war, uh, the Roman Empire called upon many of the ships, civilian ships, to be conscripted into their army. And Josephus tells us that 250 uh, fishing vessels, large enough for war, were conscripted into this battle. So there were at least that many large ships out on this lake fishing. Okay? It was a big deal. It was a big industry. And it was central to the culture in the place where Jesus enters on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So all that context brings us to our passage for today. Uh, Mark chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 16. Actually, let's back up to 15. We'll read our passage from last week, which was just one verse, and then that'll run us up into uh, verse 16 through 20. Jesus comes and He is saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, excuse me, kingdom of heaven would be Matthew. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And as He walked by the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon, you know him as Peter, and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. The way that that is worded is so important. We'll come back to it. Now, as uh, in verse 18, and straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who, were, who also were in the ship, a ship, a different ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. It's a familiar story. A familiar story. It's actually a story that we looked at Luke's account of in Sunday school this morning in the conference room Sunday school class. And you'll notice, people who are in that Sunday school class, that there is a chunk of this story that Mark chooses to leave out. 
And we'll, we'll see why in just a moment because Mark is driving towards a particular point. He's leaving out key aspects because he wants to communicate something to us about our Lord and something about ourselves. As we look at this passage, there's a couple aspects that I think we should take one by one. And, and this passage is about the calling of the disciples. So first of all, let's look at the called. The called. The people that Jesus called. We see them delineated. First of all, Simon and Andrew are the first pair. And these are brothers. They work in the fishing industry. There's a possibility that they have been orphaned by this time. Uh, we know that their mother has already passed. Uh, and we never hear any mention of their father besides his name. He doesn't seem to be present. But here they are, they're fishing. And then there's another pair of brothers, James and John. And James and John, they work for their father, Zebedee. He seems to own his own fishing business. It's a successful fishing business. It's successful enough to own multiple boats and also to hire employees. So they're actually doing pretty well for themselves, these fishermen. And actually, we find out from another gospel that in some way, Simon and Andrew's fishing business is connected to Zebedee's. It seems almost as though they're employees of his, though Peter owns his own boat. But they're all, they're all connected, these four fishermen. And something to note is that these fishermen are just regular people. They were not called because they were special. In fact, I believe that one of the main reasons that these men were called is because they were not special. God wanted His strength to be shown through the weakness of His followers. And if you know your weakness the way that I do, that is a big amen. God called regular people. They had normal lives. They had jobs. They were blue-collar people. I would say most of the people here in our church, blue-collar people. You just work a job. Maybe you own your own business, but it's not a big business. It's enough to pay the bills. Maybe you do okay for yourselves. And that seems to be what's going on. They had families just like you do. We know from Scripture that at least Peter was married. Um, it's possible that some of these other disciples were also married, though we never get a mention in Scripture of their wives or their children. But they had families. They had a job. They had all the normal concerns and bills to pay and taxes and all of that. They were just regular people. And uh, they weren't super high, exalted officials. They also weren't necessarily like dejected people. Um, who um, you know, were strung out on drugs or had nothing going on. They were just like regular, average people. Like Their neighbors would have known them as like, those are just you know, the sons of Zebedee and the sons of Jonah. They're just our neighbors. Notice what these men are not. These men are not religious leaders. Okay? They seem to be educated at least enough to read, write, and do basic business. But they, they aren't thoroughly, thoroughly trained, like you might think of like Paul, okay, who was very well trained in, in, in things of religion, set at the feet of Gamaliel and all that. These guys were not that. They weren't well educated. They're not religious leaders. And in some, some cases, these four men, they're not even well-tempered, okay? At this point in their lives, you would not have wanted to call one of these guys to be your pastor. 
Because they were all pretty fiery. We, we see all the time Peter having to learn that foot and mouth lesson, okay? Because he loved to just say stuff, and we do too, okay? But uh, he was like especially good at just like running his mouth. And then Jesus gives James and John a moniker. He calls them the sons of thunder. And uh, the reason is because I think, I think what we can draw from that is that they like to fight. <laughs> they like to fight about things, okay? We especially see there's one passage where it's James and John's idea. There's some people, they come up to oppose Jesus' teaching, and James and John are like, we should just call down fire from heaven, and they could just all be burned up. <laughs> okay, that's the type of people, okay? They're, they're not well-educated, they're not overly religious, okay? And they're not even well-tempered. They're regular people with regular problems. And Jesus calls them. Jesus called the unexpected, the unqualified, the common. The people Jesus calls are not called based on their aptitude. They are called based on their yieldedness. I don't want to do a mighty work. I want God to do a mighty work through me. If it's my work, it will be worth nothing. If it's God's work, it will be eternal. We have a tendency to let our perceptions of our inadequacies keep us from serving the Lord with our whole heart. But God is not calling you based on your talent. He's calling you based on His sovereignty through your yielding. So we see the called, these common fishermen, two sets of brothers, just regular people. Then we see the caller, or the one calling. Of course, it's Jesus who does the calling. And that is significant. And let me tell you why. In Jesus' day, a person who traveled and taught the way that Jesus did would have been called a rabbi, okay, a teacher. And there are many times in Scripture that we see people call Jesus Rabbi, and he doesn't correct them. He doesn't see that as a bad term because it just means that this is a teacher that people follow. And rabbis would have disciples. That was normal. Okay, there were lots of people who would come to listen to them teach, but they would have protégés. They would have students who were enrolled in their school. But here's the key difference. Okay, Normally, if you wanted to be a student of a rabbi, you wanted to go and study uh, the Jewish religion under a rabbi, you would seek out the rabbi and you would apply. You would say, rabbi, or more likely, actually, probably your parents would take you to a rabbi and they would vouch for you. Here's our child. Here's how much of the law he has memorized. Here's how well he reads and understands. Here are these things from our religious books that he understands. And they would put forward like a resume or an application to be, to be uh, one of the followers of that rabbi. You would have to seek out your teacher. But something very countercultural happens here. And the teacher seeks out his students. He comes to find them. It is Jesus who calls. I think, again, this point reinforces the fact that it was not based on their aptitude. They didn't have to put forward their resume to become a disciple of Jesus. But furthermore, it shows that Jesus is the seeker. Before we ever sought Christ, He sought 
us. And that's so important because we have to fight this temptation that anything that is good in us is of ourselves. It is God's work in you. And the hubris to say, well, at least I figured it out. At least, you know, all my unsaved friends, they don't get it. I get it. As though you first sought Christ. No, Christ first sought you. It's not a question of, for those of you who are theologically informed, this is not a question of Calvinism, Arminianism. There's a universal understanding that it is Christ who initiates the work in our hearts. It is the Holy Spirit who prompts us to pursue after the Lord. Christ seeks us. There is no part of your salvation or your calling that is of your own merit. He sought you. He bought you. He sealed you with His Spirit. It is a work of the Lord. So as we look at the caller, we see, first of all, Jesus is the one who calls, and that's significant. But we also see that how Jesus calls, He calls with authority. He calls with authority. Actually, this whole section of Mark 1 beginning two, par- two paragraphs ago, two pericopes ago, all the way to the end of Mark 1, there's a running theme. And the theme is Jesus has authority. He's in charge. We saw that Jesus has authority over sin. He didn't fall to temptation. We will see in the next passage, Jesus has authority over Satan. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over creation. But here we see that Jesus has authority over the hearts of man. There is something that is like shocking. One commentator uh, said that he thinks that this might be the most surprising thing in the Gospels. I would say that's debatable, but it is very surprising that Jesus comes by the sea, and if you read Luke's account, there's, there's quite a few things that happen here. But really, the bottom line is, Jesus says, follow me, and they just follow. They don't stop to argue. They don't stop to question. They don't ask Jesus his credentials. Now, in all fairness, if you read all the gospel accounts, um, these fishermen have already seen Jesus. They've heard him teach. Um, they've seen him. Um, they witnessed his baptism. They were disciples of John the Baptist, some of them. And so they were pointed to Christ, so they're familiar with him. It's not like he's a complete stranger. But the fact of the matter is, we don't have any indication that any of them were already thinking, you know, I think I might leave my whole business behind and go follow this guy around for the next few years. I don't think that they were already debating it. Jesus comes out and he says, follow after me, and they do. Christ has authority. In fact, in the very next passage in Mark that we won't get to today, actually the very next two verses, we see that the marvelous thing about Christ when he was traveling around and teaching is that he taught with authority. People could tell. They could just tell. This guy's in charge. He knows the truth. He speaks with sureness. What he says makes sense. It penetrates deep. It is the Word of God. Jesus says, Come ye after me, and they come. So we see the called. We see the caller. Now we see the calling. 
These are the primary questions we should be asking about this passage. Who is calling and what is he calling to? First of all, this is a calling of discipleship. The verbiage here, come ye after me, if you look at the original language, if you look at the Greek, um, something that is informed to us is that this is a common expression related to this rabbi-disciple relationship. He's calling them to discipleship. Here's the difference. Jesus already had followers. I mentioned that before. There was already a group of people that would kind of just follow him around. They probably wouldn't go from city to city, although that does happen sometimes. For the most part, he'd come into a city, he'd begin to teach, and he would gather like followers. There are people who would come to listen. Why did they come? Well, they liked the fellowship. You know, they were there with their friends. It's, a, you know, it's better than daytime television. They thought the messages were interesting, sometimes very controversial. We'd get some very good religious debates going on after we listened to a sermon of Jesus. Sometimes there was free food. So you can't beat that. It's just kind of nice to be there. These were the followers. Does that sound like any church people you know? Well, it's just kind of nice to be there. I, I, I like the people. You know, it's not too aggressive. Sometimes there's free food. The messages are interesting. Those are followers. So I asked if, does that sound like any church people you know? In what ways does it sound like you? Are you following the Lord because it's nice? It's fun? It's convenient? Your friends are here? Your family is here? There are plenty of followers in the church. We do not need more followers. Okay? This is not a, a semantic distinction that Scripture always makes, okay? But here I think it does. We don't need more followers because you're not called to just be a follower. Yes, you are called to be a follower. You are called to be something more, though. You are called to be a disciple. What's the difference? Discipleship is an official position. It's a commitment. Disciples know that learning of Christ and serving Him is not a casual thing you do when it's fun. It is a position that you commit yourself to. Disciples are intentionally training and practicing the work of the ministry. They're not just learning for the sake of learning or for the sake of good conversation or good fellowship. They are learning so that they will be equipped for their mission day to day. If you are in Christ today, God has not called you to simply be a follower. He has called you to be a disciple. A person who considers, think back to my introduction, a person who considers it their calling to follow Jesus. Not a hobby. Not a side gig. Not an add-on. Their calling. It is a calling of discipleship. It is also a calling of radical new priorities. Think about the disciples. Look, look at this expression. Uh, I didn't write down what verse here. Let me look. Um, it is in verse... Well, it happens in verse 20. 
with James and John, straightway he called them, and what did they do? They left their father with the servants. They just left. And in verse 18, and straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. They left. What does it mean? Okay, let's think. Okay, historical context, the whole picture of all the Gospels, what does it actually mean the disciples left all? Okay, this expression the Scripture uses. They left all to follow him. Um, It doesn't actually mean that they abandoned their families. Because if you were listening to me at the beginning, there might be a red flag going up. Wait a minute. If they had wives, maybe children, and we know that like Peter's mother-in-law was dependent on him. She lived with him. Uh, She was a widow. If they had all these people that they were responsible for, are you saying that they just abandoned their families to go follow Jesus? Actually, no, they didn't. Um, We know that uh, Peter didn't sell his house. Peter kept his house because that's where his wife, at least his wife and his mother-in-law would continue to to live. Peter didn't sell his boat because they actually used his boat several times in the Scripture. We see them in Peter's boat. Okay, Um, So it's not like, they necessarily sold everything and abandoned everyone and gave up on all the other commitments that God had put in their lives as though they were not important at all. But what it does mean when they left all is that there was a radical reorganization of their priorities. In light of what Christ was asking them to do, their jobs didn't matter. Their homes didn't matter. That was all secondary far secondary. Remember when Jesus taught, if any man comes after me and hates not his father and mother and wife and brother, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, this is, a, this is an expression of hyperbole. Jesus is saying that your love for me and your commitment to me should be so strong that it's almost like nothing else matters. They left all. They radically reordered their priorities to make Christ, His mission, His calling, and discipleship after Him the number one thing. Christ often, often spoke of the cost of discipleship. Being a follower doesn't cost you anything. You just show up when you want to. Being a disciple costs you a lot. And there's a potential that being a disciple could cost you your relationships. It could cost you your possessions. It could cost you your freedom. It could cost you your life. You understand that if you're a disciple of Jesus, that is not out of the question. You understand that all four of these men, with the exception of maybe John, and it is debated, would all die for Jesus. There's a cost to being a disciple of Christ. This was Jesus' call. It was no trivial thing. They left all and followed him. Hey, Peter, what's going to happen to your net if you just leave it there? I don't know. At this point, I don't think it matters. Hey, John, are are your dad's servants going to be able to mend all those nets before the night shift without you here? I don't know. I got something more important to do. They left all. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We have got our priorities so out of whack. We. We make our money, our jobs, our position, our reputation, 
our relationships, we love to put any of those things first place in our lives. But our first place is our calling to be the disciples of Jesus. So it's a calling of discipleship. It's a calling of radical new priorities. And it is a calling of eternal importance. Jesus doesn't just say, follow after me. He says what the result of following after Him will be. He says, follow after me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. In another Gospel, it's expressed this way. Henceforth, or from now on, you will catch men. This is actually really interesting because it's not just that Jesus was being timely, though he was being timely because they were in their boats. You know, one pair of brothers was fishing, the other pair of brothers was preparing to fish. They were mending their nets. Um, it's not just timely, it's actually theologically rich because in the Old Testament, the image of casting a net for fish is everywhere. Um, we won't turn there. You can write this passage down. Jeremiah 16, 16 through 18 is a great example. Amos, Habakkuk, they all use this image of casting a net. But here's the difference. Every time in the Old Testament the picture of casting a net, fishing for men is used, it is an image of judgment. What happens is God casts his net, an inescapable net of God's wrath, to pour judgment on those who are in the sea. Here Jesus is changing up this image, an image that Jewish people would have understood. I mean, it's in several books in the Old Testament. He's changing up the image, and the net that is being cast is not a net of judgment. It is a net of salvation. It is a net of mercy. It's almost like the sea in this analogy is our sin and our separation from God. One day, God will cast an inescapable net and will judge mankind for our sin. It's coming. But in the meantime, Jesus is casting a very different net to snatch those fish out of the sea of sin and separation. He is casting a net of mercy. And you know what? Jesus wants you to cast the net for him. He wants to be the commander of an army of fishers of men. If you look closely at how Mark writes this account, he intentionally leaves some things out. He's not being dishonest. It is a true account. But he intentionally leaves out some details that other Gospel writers include because he wants to express to us the urgency of this call. Put aside all those other details for just a minute and just remember that if people are not caught by the net of the Gospel, they will be caught by the net of God's judgment. There was an administrator at my college who every time he would take the platform in chapel, he would have us repeat after him a very sobering thing. He would say, the most sobering reality in the world today is, and the student body would say, people are dying and going to hell today. We don't like to think about it. It's not nice. In fact, we like to think about it so little that a large section of Christendom has decided that God's judgment isn't real. <laughs> we made it up. It's just an expression. God's judgment is real. It has to be because he's holy. He cannot abide sin forever. He's long-suffering, but he is holy. And his judgment will be poured out. And it has been left to us, empowered by the Spirit of God, to cast the net of the gospel. 
So if we take this analogy, you're one of two people, okay? If you're in Christ today, you are a fisher or a fisherman, <laughs> okay? Uh, I don't think we use the word fisher anymore, although I think it's a better word than fisherman, but you are a fisherman. If you're a fisherman, first of all, where is your sea? What's your lake? Where are you supposed to fish? Is it your workplace? Is it your family? Is it your neighborhood? I've never talked to those people. They always play their music too loud. I wish they'd put up a fence. Is it in your ministry? Where's your sea? Where's your net supposed to go? And then what is your net? Well, your net is the gospel. Do you know how to use it? Well, I'll tell you what, there's only one surefire way to learn how to give the gospel. And that is to try. And you might do it ham-handedly. I have. <laughs> I can tell you some stories about sometimes where I have handled witnessing opportunities with all thumbs. Okay. Uh, but first of all, it's not you. The one who calls you also empowers you. It's not about your ability. But you have your net, the gospel. Do you know how to cast it? you got to go practice. Okay, if you think about how they would have cast nets in this time. All right. I'll describe to you very briefly how to fish if you live in the first century Roman Empire. Okay? Um, you've got a round net. It's 15 to 20 feet wide. It has weights on all the edges. And you would, as a fisherman, know how to swing that net and fling it into the water in a twisting motion so that in midair, it would go from kind of bunched up to fully open and fall on the water. And those weights would sink down, and any fish that were under that net would get captured under the weights. At this point, there's two ways to bring it back. If you tied a rope to the net, you might be able to pull it back in your boat. I actually read a passage in John this morning where they tried to pull it in their boat, and then they couldn't, so they actually had to pull that rope up on shore to pull that up. But there's a more primitive form of that fishing, which is there's no rope. You throw the net, and then somebody dives to the bottom of the sea and brings it up by hand, which is actually probably more common uh, way of fishing at this time. The rope thing was the disciples did it, but not everybody did. All of that took effort and a lot of practice. I imagine that there were a lot of young fishermen's sons standing out there with an old net that was just past its prime, throwing it into the water over and over and over again, trying to figure out how to do it. Because when the time came, they needed to be able to cast that net or starve, okay? Giving the gospel, taking the gospel to the world, it takes practice. But you're never going to learn how if you don't just go do it. I have known people with next to no biblical knowledge who were freshly saved, the only tools they had were like four or five verses and their own testimony, and I've seen them bring people to Christ legitimately in a lasting way. You just have to go do it. You just have to go do it. So maybe in this analogy of, of the fishers of men, you're a fisher, but there might be some people in this room that you're still a fish. If you've never been saved, 
Let me explain that. If you've never repented of your sin, put your faith in Christ, experienced new life, if you've never done that, then you are still a fish in the sea of sin and separation from your God. And maybe you're swimming happily today and you've skillfully avoided the net of salvation for whatever reason. You like the sea. It's kind of nice. But one day, God will toss a net that none can escape. A net of judgment. And without Christ, you'll experience that firsthand. To be with Christ, to serve Him, to be His disciple, to be a fisher of men, it's not easy. It costs a lot. But it is great. It's so good. I would invite you today, if you don't know the Lord, today could be the day. You could come out of the sea. You could become a follower of Christ. You could become a fisher of men. You could be saved from your sin. I hope you just come and talk to me, or if you know somebody here who's a member of the church who, who, who does know the Lord, I hope you come talk to them. I hope you get this settled before you leave today. I hope you'll leave today confident that you know your position before God. It's a wonderful thing to follow Him. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll sing a song. Father, thank You for this well-known, age-old story the story of the calling to be disciples and the calling to be fishers of men. Lord, would you empower us? Would you give us boldness? Lord, would you help us to follow after you in a way that we can be thoroughly equipped to reach people with the gospel? Would our following after you in discipleship be the motivation for us to reach the world? That our relationship with you is so rich that it pours out in gospel telling to the world. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know Christ, that You would draw them to Yourself, that Your Holy Spirit would be speaking to them even now, that You would give them the boldness to ask one of Your children how to become a follower of Jesus. Fathers, You work in our hearts and You empower us to serve You. We'll praise You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.